they tell me that a Dutchman is never without a word until he's called on to speak. But I trust that the Lord will give us his word for us to consider this morning. But as Pastor Johnson asked that I might give you just a word concerning the school, for those of you who already know about the school, you might be interested to know that we have uh, doubled our number. Now, doesn't that sound like a big number? Well, it really means 15 instead of uh, 7. And uh, we're thankful for the interest, and we have a few now that are uh, outside of our church uh, congregation that are now attending, but they are not from out of state yet. It seems like uh, Pennsylvania is for the Pennsylvanians, but uh, I'm thankful that uh, we have such a state. Uh, I miss the mountains. This is as far west as I've ever been. I've been as far south as you can go without going to Cuba, but I've never been this far west. And I miss the rolling hills already. But uh, I'm enjoying the conference here. I'd enjoy it even if you were in Alaska because it's the fellowship we've come for, not for the rolling hills or the flat plains. Uh, we'd like you to uh, continue in prayer for the school and for the students. Uh, the students are now, uh, some of them anyway, are in their third year. And as the Lord wills, uh, not this May, but next May, we should be graduating our first uh, class uh, for the four-year term. Uh, I have one of the students with me, and uh, don't get into any theological discussions, please. He hasn't graduated yet. <laughs> and don't pick on his pastor either, please. <laughs> so we appreciate your interest, and we appreciate your prayers for us. Now, I'd like you to turn with me, if you will, to the 1st Corinthian letter and chapter 13. 1st Corinthians chapter 13. Shall we read this chapter that is so familiar, but let us read it once again. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I am become as sounding bronze or as tinkling cymbals. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemingly. Seeketh not its own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall be done away. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. 
But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. My topic has been given me, and the topic is the believer's warfare against intellectualism. And I choose for my text the verse 13 of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. But before I do go into this, I'd like to, by way of introduction, clarify a certain matter. I don't think it's proper to change your title, but I'd like to add a little bit to the title, if I may. I'd like to say the believer's warfare against pseudo or false intellectualism. If you look in your dictionary, you'll find the word intellectualism is the exercise of the intellect. And you'll find, if you look up the word intellect, did you ever note when you go to the dictionary and you try to find a word, you always have to go to another word to find out what that word meant? Intellectualism is the exercise of the intellect. So what does the word intellect mean? The faculty of thinking and acquiring knowledge. So we could say that intellectualism is the exercise of our God-given faculty of thinking and acquiring knowledge. I see that there need be no war against this. But there is very definitely a war against false intellectualism. And I believe that was in the mind of the person who gave this title. And it's that which we want to deal with this afternoon. I think it's about time we understand in our scriptures that there were those who were great scholarly men, men who were intellectuals in every way. For instance, if we take the man Moses, we talk so much about him, do we know what an intellectual he really was? Schooled in all the wisdom of Egypt? To think that Moses would have been spared by God, and he was in a very miraculous way, and reared right in the house of the enemy of the Israelites and given the best education of his day. And that meant he had good training in every way. And if I might just put this into our desire too at our school, it is not just to fill one's head with knowledge, but to train that person in every way, not just our thought life, but everything that deals with us. And so Moses was. You can be sure he knew what it was to have etiquette classes. You can be sure that he knew how to act and react under various circumstances. But with all of his education, I'd like you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 for a moment and note something. Here's a verse that I'm sure has rejoiced your heart as well as my heart. In Hebrews chapter 11, where we read Moses, the intelligent man he was, with all of his education, it is recorded thusly in verse 24. 
by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And gentlemen, I suggest to you, he did not learn that in the classroom. We find a man who was intelligent, a man who we would call an intellectual in the true sense of the word, was a man who also had great faith in Almighty God. And we find him recorded in God's Hall of Faith. But there's also another one that comes to my mind as we think about this introduction to our warfare against pseudo-intellectualism. The Apostle John, he's an interesting man to me. He should be to all of us, especially if we're interested in dispensationalism. He always gives us a problem, doesn't he? Well, maybe not all of us, some of us he does anyway. His writings are quite interesting, aren't they? But I'd like you to note something in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. We realize what the context is here. There was a miracle done, and when they wanted to know what authority gave these men the ability to heal this person, they said that Jesus Christ was the one, the risen Lord. All right, look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Would you note something here about John? He is called not an intellectual, but he is called, rather, an unlearned and ignorant man. I trust we understand the difference between ignorance and stupidity. Someone once told me the difference between ignorance and stupidity is the difference between a Dutchman and a German. I don't know if that's true. But nonetheless, the difference between ignorance and stupidity, ignorance, uh, we, may be, we are all ignorant in one way or another. There are certain fields of uh, study in which we are completely ignorant, having no knowledge or not being schooled in. These people were not stupid. John wasn't stupid. Neither was Peter. These were men of God, and they were bold, and they were filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. But notice what is said of them. They were unlearned and ignorant men. They didn't graduate from any great theological seminary. They hadn't gone to the best universities of their day. But nonetheless, there was something that brought their attention. 
to those round about, even to the so-called scholars of their day. I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. And I'm not going to get in any trouble because I'm just going to bring you something here, not dispensational, just something concerning John. All right, John in chapter 20. John chapter 20, this man who was unlearned and ignorant in the eyes of the scholars pens these words, verse 30, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And then also I'd like to read 21, chapter 21, in verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Have you ever read the scripture and read it? and you read it for one reason one time, and another time you read it for a different reason. As I was thinking on this man, and as I read this, it almost overwhelmed me. Of course he was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, but it was nonetheless John who penned it. And though he was unlearned and ignorant in the eyes of man, not a person in this room could have done better. There is, therefore, a connection between Moses and between John, between the intellectual and the ignorant. Both of these men have taken a place of fame. There are great men who are scholars and who are well respected by those who study the books that the world, for the most part, have never heard of. They have forgotten. Kings have been born and they have reigned and they have passed on into silence. But John remains on, doesn't he? And Moses continues on, does he not? Why? Because there was something in those two men that was more important that the world could not forget it. They noted that these ignorant and unlearned men had been with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Moses, choosing rather to suffer afflictions with his own people than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, he was in a relationship that even few Christians today realize. These men, Moses and John, stand out because they were spiritual intellectuals. Today at the table as we were talking, I gave a little bit of a 
thought that I was intending to bring to you here, and it's this. I believe if we cannot train our children to respect authority of the home, of the policeman, of the school teacher, of the preacher, of the Sunday school teacher, neither will that child ever respect Almighty God. Now that might not sound to be very valid in the eyes of psychology, but it is true. I believe there's a law that still is in effect, cause and effect. You cannot, you cannot listen to a man preach and go home and tear him and his sermon apart and expect that child to respect the minister, nor even the word of God. These men were spiritual giants. They were spiritual intellectuals. And as men beheld them, they held the one they served in high esteem. I think too often times, and I must admit this myself, we bring reproach to Christ rather than esteem to him. We talk about being ambassadors for Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you have ever had an opportunity to meet an ambassador, but you know he isn't the most slack person you'll meet. It was my privilege when in York to meet the ambassador to the Netherlands from the United States. And that man stood erect, and he was dressed just right. There's only one quarrel I have with him, and if I ever get to meet him, I wish he'd learn to speak Dutch. It would be very nice. <laughs> but he was a good representative except for the fact that he didn't bother to learn the language of the people he was there representing or representing our nation to these people but nonetheless he had a big responsibility upon his shoulders and these men Moses and so John had something upon them now we have a problem today amongst Christians. We have people who are afraid of intellectualism. They're afraid of knowledge. Oh, we shouldn't be afraid of knowledge. And we shouldn't be afraid of our intellect so long as God is the one who's dominating it. So long as he's the source of what is going into our minds. There's an awful lot that's going into our minds that are not godly and not from God. A few months back, or about a year or two ago, God opened up a door to me, and I'm going to shock most of you if you don't realize that I happen to be a Christian psychologist. I didn't know it either. But nonetheless, <laughs> I found that uh, people were saying, well, you go see... I was almost saying Reverend Castlander, that's what they call me, some of them, but anyway, you know what I mean by that. Uh, Pastor Castlander, or uh, this minister over here, you go see him, he'll help you out. And I had very little psychology uh, in school, just what Mr. Naramore sends our way once in a while. And, uh, but nonetheless, I believe that God was using this to open a door up to bring many to Christ. And he's doing that very same thing.
But do you know the best psychology anybody can have is the Spirit of God opening up our minds to somebody else's heart? They talk about a one-by-one, one, uh, I forget what we call it, we were talking about it today, a one-by-one one dealing with persons. You know, that's what's so necessary because today we're just one in the mass. Just one in the mass. We're no longer the individual and we're dying and we're looking for identity. You see, that one-by-one one thing. And I find that there is something basically missing within believers as well as unbelievers. And I'm going to give you those two basic spiritual truths that are missing that Moses and John had. And if you and I do not have this, will it be no value to God? <coughs> One is found in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. You know, I read that verse time and time again, and that's usually where I put the period. And I missed something very important in that verse. You know what I missed? Neither indeed can be. Do you get what the Apostle's bringing across to us here? He says that the carnal mind, that human unregenerated self, that mind is at enmity against God. But we know that. And we know that it's not subject to the law of God, but do you know neither indeed can be? Do you know how many believers today are trying to build up that old nature so that it will be usable of God? I know I did for a long time. Well, it couldn't be too long because I'm pretty young yet. But nonetheless, I did it. For a while, I tried to bring that old nature into subjection to Jesus Christ. And I found out just what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6. I can't do it. And here in Romans 7, I can't do it. It's an impossibility. All right, I want us also to turn, if you will, with me to 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. verse 21 for after that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God it pleased God by the foolishness or the apparent foolishness of preaching to save them that believe now there's two things that come to my mind through these two verses that I believe are the two basic spiritual truths that we must grasp if we are going to war a good warfare. One, self-reformation 
can't work. We know that. That's why we came to Christ. But are we like the Galatians, so foolish to believe we begin by faith and now we're going to uh, perfect ourselves through the flesh or through works? That's a book that really bothered me for a long time. You know the book of Galatians? I always thought it was a very unimportant book because it was so small. But you know it's the death stroke. It's the death stroke to legalism. It's the death stroke to what we're talking about here, self-reformation. And not only can we not reform ourselves, I belong to a church that that was the title we used, we tried to reform, but we didn't, it didn't work. But neither can we, through human wisdom, change ourselves. When I sit down and I counsel with a person, I tell them right off, I'm honest with them, I'm not a counselor, nor am I the son of a counselor. But I'll tell you one thing, I'm, I'm telling you what you have had happen in your childhood, and I'm telling you folks today too, it has a great bearing on what's happening to us today. Don't fool yourself to think it hasn't. But what good is it going to do to go back and blame mother and father and great aunt and great uncle and that bad teacher and all these other things? Why don't we deal with the problem? Why don't we deal with the problem at hand? And that's where Jesus Christ comes. Not human wisdom, but that's where Jesus Christ comes. And that's why he says to us, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. You know anybody who by wisdom learned about God? They tell me today that if we could educate our children, we wouldn't have the crime we have. There's somebody in this room that would be an authority on it since he teaches at one of our universities. But where do we find a great deal of crime and a great deal of perversion? But where we have a great deal of learning as well. So learning in itself or knowledge in itself is of no value unless it's linked to its source. What good does it do to know how to do something without having a reason for doing it. There's a certain man, I could tell you his name, and I'm sure some of you know who he is. He's the son of a uh, very well-known uh, pastor, nationally known. And this boy has degrees in several, several fields, and they're not honorary degrees, they're earned degrees in various fields. One happens to be theology, but it's in other fields as well. But the man is not able to live. He cannot work. He cannot be, uh, he, he's not married. He's not being able to do anything. He reminds me kind of like a, uh, something we'd like in a library, that when we want to know a question, we turn him on and he can tell you. He has all these facts and figures in his head, but he doesn't know how to use them. You know, and I'm afraid, even within our grace circles, that even spiritually we get a lot of facts in our heads and we can quote them out and say them and they can come out as clearly as 2 plus 2 equals 4. But when it comes to putting them into action, 
then we find out the reality of those two spiritual truths. Self-reformation can't do it. Can you love somebody in your own self? We try to do it, don't we? There are people in my church, just like there are people in your church, that great against your personality. Do you know that? And I go around with a smile on my face when inside I'm as mad as a hornet. I'm trying to reform myself still. And then I sit down with my human reasoning and I say to myself, well, it's probably something left over from early childhood, so don't worry about it. <laughs> no, we must face the issues as they are. There are men who stand out as spiritual giants and spiritual intellectuals. They use the brain God gave them for his glory. And you know, there's an awful lot of gray matter in our head that's going to waste that God would like us to use for his glory. We talk about money and we talk about time, but God wants us. And if he's got us, he's got all the rest. And that doesn't say I'm against giving money or giving time. Don't misunderstand me. I wouldn't be a preacher if I didn't believe that. All right, now I'd like us to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We find there are men who are intellectuals, and they have been holy men. That doesn't mean without sin. But they have been godly men, separated unto God. And there have been men who seemingly, in the eyes of the world, were unlearned in many fields. But they were nonetheless holy men. They were men who were usable. And God used them. But we find these men knew the basic spiritual truths. We can't reform ourselves. We can't bring our old natures into conformity to Jesus Christ or to the will of God. And neither can we, through our human wisdom, understand God or spiritual matters. We need the Holy Spirit of God and the Holy Word of God. And that brings me to the final point, our weapons against false intellectualism. It isn't going to be everybody who studies is therefore wrong. It doesn't mean that someone should not understand something in the field of electronics or mathematics, but it does mean something. It means we have to take into account that at the source of all knowledge there is an almighty God, an almighty creator, sustainer God, who has created all things for his pleasure. You know, that's a verse that's tremendous, isn't it? Revelation, it comes from the book of Revelation 4 and verse 11. Thou art worthy to receive honor and glory, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are, and they were created. Boy, that answers a lot of problems for me. What am I doing here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What's my purpose in life? It answers it for me. 
I've been created by a creator God to glorify him. And you know, that gives me a real sense, as they talk about today, of identity. But until I understand those two basic spiritual laws that I can't do it in my own strength and my own wisdom isn't going to help me out, I won't be able to do that for which I've been created until I turn to Jesus Christ, until I turn to him in faith, until he becomes Lord and Master. And we talk about these terms all the time. But how do we get them? How do we turn to him? How do we lay hold of him? We deal with alcoholics in our area, and uh, many of them are in the AA, the Alcoholic Anonymous. And one of the titles they use time and again is Let Go and Let God. Isn't that wonderful? That even sounds biblical, doesn't it? But how do you do it? Did you ever try to let go and let God? Well, God tells us how to let go. And he tells us how he is going to take over. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he tells us how to let go so he can take over so that he may win the battle against intellectual... Uh, pseudo-intellectualism. You're not going to win that battle. I'm not going to win that battle. You're not going to straighten out professors and uh, universities today. They could embarrass us with their knowledge and we stand there with our mouths open. A friend of mine who was in seminary, not in seminary, but in missionary intern uh, internship with me, he was of Dutch extraction and both of us were looking forward to going to Holland as missionaries. Both of us were excited and we prayed about it. And we had a heart's burden for the people there. And you know, if any of you have any drop of Dutch blood in you, and I don't know how many of you do have, you ought to know a little bit of what's going on in that Protestant clean Holland. It isn't as Protestant and clean as you think it is, but that's as far as I'm going. But nonetheless, he wanted to go and I wanted to go and we prayed about this matter. And he said, I cannot go until... I have all the degrees I need. He said, if I go there and I don't have the degrees equal to that of the other dominates, they won't listen to me. I don't know, he must have been born in an ivory tower because you can have all those degrees and that won't make a man listen to you, especially in spiritual matters. And to my knowledge, uh, he never went. To York, and to my knowledge, he's off and on in school yet, and the man is now in his 40s, and he's still going off and on to school. There's nothing wrong with school. There's nothing wrong with learning, so long as it doesn't become our God, so long as we use it to glorify him instead of take the place of Almighty God. But how can we prevent it from taking the place of Almighty God? 1 Corinthians 13, 13 tells us just exactly what our weapons are in, our, in this warfare. He says, now there's abiding faith, hope, and love. We have certain weapons, we have certain tools we may use today against this enemy as well as against any enemy. Faith, hope, and love. And you know, I didn't realize those were tools. One of the greatest forces in this world is faith. 
It really is. Do you know how many people are looking for faith? They're looking every place but where you can find it, but they're looking for it, aren't they? I've had people say with tears in their eyes before me, if I could only have your faith. If they only knew how poor it was, they wouldn't want it. But faith that God speaks about comes from his holy word. I never realized until someone said at the last pastor's conference that it really hit me. He said, we not only believe in preaching the truth, we believe in singing the truth. And then I've been a nervous wreck since. Our hymnal is so full of mistakes. <laughs> it really is. But at the same time, I couldn't help but thinking as I sang the song, I liked so much. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, no matter what man may say. I see his hands about me. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always there. He lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. You ask me how I know he lives? Because he lives within me. You know, if that's really the reason why we know he lives, we're all in trouble because I know Mormons who say they know that their religion's right because it's in here. I know people who are outside of the Christian fold who know their religion is right because it's in here. And they can show miracles and they can talk in tongues and they can do divine healings and they can do a lot of things that you and I can't do. So if that's got to be the proof of the pudding, we're in the wrong business. We're in the wrong business. But we've left our sure foundation, the Word of God. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted. They're the raging test of time. Where have those words gone to? We have only but faith, hope, and love. And with these three, we can conquer the falsehood of man because they don't have faith because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God you know I'm absolutely sure I'm going to heaven I'm absolutely sure of that in fact I'm more certain that I'm going to heaven than I'm going back to Pennsylvania and that's no reflection on my driver <laughs> But I am absolutely certain of that. Not because I'm so good, but because Jesus Christ has completed something for me. Then I have a hope. The world doesn't have hope. I've talked with people who said, I don't even know what it feels like to have hope. I remember a woman with tears in her eyes as I said to her about hope. She says, I don't even know what it would feel like to have it. I've never had any. You know, the world really never has had hope the way the scripture speaks about hope. And you can conquer the falsehood of pseudo-intellectualism through hope. There is no hope outside of the written word of God outside of the finished work of Jesus Christ and he is indeed our hope and love you know you can frighten somebody 
you can frighten somebody to where they will even stop being frightened. But love is a greater force than that. You can frighten a person out of church, but excuse the expression, you can't frighten anyone out of hell, and yet preachers try to do that. Have you ever heard somebody say, I can remember them saying it to me, do you know this may be your last opportunity? You may not live to see tomorrow, and boy, your heart's pounding away, you see. I wonder sometimes if that's all honest. See? It's very true, we may not live to see tomorrow, but we may live to see a hundred tomorrows, or a thousand tomorrows. But I wonder sometimes if we don't try to take the place of God the Holy Spirit. I wonder sometimes if we don't try to force someone into a profession of faith and they profess but they don't possess because God the Holy Spirit wasn't doing his work. We were trying to do it for him. Fear will not conquer, but love will. God says there is a false intellectualism today. And he gives to us his heroes of the faith who stood up spiritually strong. And they knew that there was no hope within themselves or within their minds, but their hope was in the Lord. I wonder if we know that today. I wonder if we know we not only have hope in the Lord, but we have faith, hope, and love. And these three, and of course we know the greatest of these is love. For that will go on forever and ever. Faith will someday be met by sight. And hope, why who hopes when he sees the reality of it? But love will go on forever. Faith, hope, and love. With these three, with these three, we can conquer the falsehood, the falseness of pseudo-intellectualism. In closing, I just want to close with one verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. There's nothing wrong with intellectualism so long as it does not become God, but is a tool that God desires to use for his glory. And let us always remember what he says here in verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men.